On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So if you have your Bible, Zechariah, second to last book in the Old Testament, we're in the Minor Prophets. Two weeks ago we started by doing a... uh, an introduction, an overview, which was really historical in nature. We did a little biblical theology, but necessary because you got, in order to read any passage of scripture, you have to know some context, as the Germans would say, the Zitzenleben, um, especially when you're dealing with the minor prophets. If we don't have a good historical setting, then much of it will be confusing and likely not make sense. And so um, if, if you missed two weeks ago, go back and listen to that sermon and I'll give you a good operating parameter for where we are. Um, we get a vision today. Um, and I know passages like these freak people out. Uh, they think, it's just too complicated, I can't get it. Um, and, I, and I hope you don't approach God's word like that. He's not going to give us anything that's so complicated and so convoluted that we're not going to understand it. I'm not saying it's not challenging, it's going to take some work on our behalf. But don't get weirded out by it because it's a vision, Okay. Um, if you recall where we are right now in our study, it's 520 B.C. Uh, the the uh, Jews who were in exile in Babylon have returned. They've returned under Zerubbabel, their governor, Joshua, their high priest, about 42,000. In 538, they made their way back, according to Cyrus the Great and his decree. And they started building the temple, and things were going good. And then it came to a screeching halt, and everybody stopped. And then... 18 years passed, and essentially the people were living not as they were called to live. They weren't rebuilding the temple. They weren't restoring the city. They were just kind of going day by day, just trying to survive. And so after 18 years of this uh, 
really pathetic existence, God raises up Haggai and Zechariah at the exact same time. And Haggai's message is really directed to get the people to start building the temple again. It's very focused. It's very short. Zechariah's message is longer. That is a, a primary movement as well to get the people to re-engage in right worship of God. But he deals with a much larger time period. And he's dealing with a people that are discouraged, that need encouragement. Those that have, have either given up or have significantly doubted the stories of their forefathers and this great Yahweh God, this Yeshua and his movement in their lives. And so the message comes back as we started last week. The theme of the entire book is displayed in verses 1 through 6 where God says, Return to me and I will return to you. And we'll see that play itself out. That melodic line plays itself out through every single chapter and every single vision. It's this calling of his people to return to him, the creator and their father. And he will love them and he will sustain them and he will guide them and he will protect them because he's their father. And so this morning we get to the first of eight visions. Now, you think you've had rough nights? Zechariah got all eight visions in one night. Not only that, we have the date. I, I find this extraordinary. It's not, it's not something I'm going to preach on for hours and hours, but the date is February 15th, 15, 519 B.C. I mean, it's, it's amazing that we know the exact night that Zechariah got these visions. February 15th, 519 B.C. in Jerusalem, he gets these visions from God. Now, really quickly, the vision in the Bible is not a dream. It is a vision which means he's awake, he's cognizant, his eyes are opened, and he's seeing a picture. Uh, I I was talking to Joshua about it, he goes, oh, oh, it's like a movie. Yeah, yeah, it's like on the screen, and this is being played out. Okay, so we're not talking about some type of semi-conscious state. Zechariah is wide awake, and God is revealing to him a message through a picture, through a vision, through a little mini-movie, I guess we could say today, right? And in each of these eight visions, we're going to see God speaking to Zechariah so he can speak to the people and and bring them a word of encouragement, of confidence, um, because they're they're downcast and they're they're discouraged. Uh, And so we see this, this pervasive movement of God reaffirming his promises with the people that were there and calling them to action. So he's saying, this is who I am, this is what I promised, and this is what we're going to do. This is what we, collective, me in your midst, are going to do as a people. Now, before we get into the vision, because it's deep water, and I do want to swim a little bit today in, these, uh, in some of the details, the purpose of the vision is to bring clarity to the message. And if we don't start there, then we can get all wrapped up in little bits and bites and trying to figure out things that are not revealed in the vision. You know, I'll give you one example. You got, there are three horses, a red, a sorrel, which is a kind of a reddish brown. I know, ladies, you know that. Apologize, sorrel to me sounds like squirrel, but it's not. It's a color. Sorrel, swor- uh, sorrel, red, sorrel, and white. And so many of the commentators, so much time on, on what each one means. And we have an idea of the red, and we have an idea of the white, and much speculation of the brown. But you know what? We, the, the angel doesn't tell us. And so we're not going to hang out there much. We know there are three different horses with three different colors. Okay, good, good. We'll take that. We're not going to spend the next several weeks in this really weird biblical postmodern decoding sessions. We're not going to do that. We are going to strive to hear God's message, right? 
He gives Zechariah the vision to communicate the message. Zechariah didn't go out and say, hey, guess, guess what? There's a red horse and a guy on a red horse. And he didn't. He gave them the message that he was told to say. So we're going to focus here on the words. We're going to look at the picture to get some details that help us with the message. But the picture, the vision, is to help with the word, not the opposite. Um, I taught economics for years. And every time I would take out my pen to draw a curve, the whole class would go, oh. And I tried to say the curves are only given to help. They're picture forms. You guys remember supply and demand, aggregate supply, aggregate demand, cost theory, curves. You remember all? Yeah, shake your head. You're like, no, I hated it. Yeah, so did I. I had to teach it and I didn't like it, right? The curves were there to help them understand. I said, listen, if you get it without the curves, fantastic. So if you get the message without the vision, fantastic. So let us hear from God today. What is he saying to Zechariah that he wants Zechariah to say to the people that he wants us to hear today as it applies to our lives? Three things I want to look at. First, seeing clearly in an upside-down world. Seeing clearly in an upside-down world. Number two, seeing the one who intercedes on our behalf. And number three, hearing gracious and comforting words from God. Seeing clearly in an upside-down world. Seeing the one who intercedes on our behalf. And then hearing gracious and comforting words from God. So first, let's look at see how we see clearly in an upside-down world. The people of Zechariah's time were, we know they were discouraged. Um, they were unsettled in this really uh, hand-to-mouth existence that they had adopted, that they were not called to. There was probably some confusion there in light of what was happening in the entire empire. And so God's first message here in the vision that we see, because he spoke last week in the first message, the first thing he wants to reveal to them is that he is the overseer, sovereign God over everything. What's happening in Jerusalem, in Judah, in their lives, and in the entire Persian Empire. So he's in total control and knows. He sees what's going on. Nothing's hidden from him. So let's look at this first part of the vision and, and, and work with some of the details to understand this seen clearly in the upside-down world. Verse 8, I'll start. Zechariah is now speaking. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, Who are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Okay, so that's that's the message given by these three angelic horse-riding patrol people. Okay, so I want to give you, I'm going to give you the characters here so we get the picture, right? So do, like Joshua said, just kind of close your eyes. There are seven characters in this vision. Okay, there's God the Father. God the Father's in this. You don't see him. Zechariah doesn't see him, but he knows he's answering. You also have God the Son. Did you know that? God the Son is in this. He's identified as the angel of the Lord. And almost every commentator says it's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's the man on the red horse who gets off his red horse and stands amongst the myrtle trees in the glen. So you have God the Father. You have God the Son. You have Zechariah the prophet. Obviously, he's the one seeing the vision. You have Zechariah's personal angelic interpreter. I mean, it's a really cool thing. This, this angel standing right next to Zechariah, and he's going to explain everything that's going on. Okay? God the Father, God the Son, Zechariah, personal angelic interpreter. And then you have three horses 
with three angels on them. An angel on a red horse, an angel on a sorrel horse, and an angel on a white horse. Okay, those are the characters in the vision, right? Now God is seeing, I mean, Zechariah is seeing, so the angel, the interpreter's here, he's seeing Christ on the horse and then standing, and then behind him you have this patrol unit of sorts. I was trying to think of a better term, but I couldn't come up with it, so that's what you're going to get, patrol unit. So do you have the picture? Can you see it? Okay, because it's important that we're trying to use the visual cues that God gives us to understand the message. In verse 9, Zechariah, rightly confused. I mean, just like us, right? You're going, red man, I mean, horse, man on a red horse, three, red ho- three different colored horses, myrtle trees. I don't even know what a myrtle tree is. He's confused. And so Zechariah says in verse 9, what are these, my Lord? Translation, I don't get it. The angel who talked with me, this is the angelic interpreter standing next to him, said, I will show you what they are. And then instead of answering, the man standing in the, amongst the myrtle trees answers. Now, when, when Zechariah first sees him, he's riding a red horse. Okay, really quickly. Horses, Old Testament, power, war. In fact, we know from Deuteronomy, remember in Deuteronomy the law, Israel was forbidden to have horses and forbidden to have horses that came from where? Egypt. And yet we know, according to Chronicles and Kings, that Solomon had over 4,000 stalls and 12,000 horsemen. And where did he get his horses? From Egypt. Okay? So the horse represents power, and it represents a force in war. Okay? And red here, I mean, most, most of the commentators agree. I mean, red is the color of blood, is the color of vengeance, is the color of judgment. And, and the, one of the beautiful tie-ins here, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 4, there's another red horse and a rider. And I don't want to go into the details on who that is. It's not as important as what it says. The red horse was given power to, play, to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. Okay? So Christ is seen here in power on a horse that is red. And so Christ judging, Christ bringing war. Christ bringing vengeance. That's what we are to see. But then, then he gets off the horse and he's standing. In fact, the majority of the vision, he's standing in the glen amongst the myrtle trees. And he is identified as the angel of the Lord. Now this is, for those of you who have translations that do this, it's not in the Hebrew and it's never in the Hebrew. It's capital A, angel, capital L, the Lord, right? So this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the second person of the Holy Trinity before he became a man, Okay? We see, we see him, we see him in Genesis, we see him in Exodus, we see him in Joshua, we see him in Judges. I mean, he appears starting with Abraham, he appears to Jacob, he appears to Moses, he appears to, uh, to Manoah and his wife in the book of Judges. He appears to Joshua at Jericho. This is the angel of the Lord. And we know that it's God because in those scenarios, he, is, he speaks from the first person as God, and he's worshipped as God, and he doesn't say, don't worship me, I'm just an angel. And every angel that had a man bow down to him, what do they do? Get up, quick, this is not good, right? This is the angel of the Lord. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. Zechariah is seeing Jesus. Now, if you didn't see that, at first, it changes the vision. A lot. So we have direct communication now between the prophet and the second person of the Holy Triune God, Jesus Christ himself. Now he's standing amongst the myrtle trees. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know what a myrtle tree was. I had no idea. You know, I can barely tell the difference between a sycamore and an oak and and a liquid amber. You know, a myrtle tree. It's not even really a tree. It's a bush. It's a big bush. 
Um, it's got scented green leaves. It has a pretty scented white flower. You say, well, why, why here? Some of the con- commentators are speculating that, that Zechariah has actually seen the Kidron Valley, which was a valley, as many of you know, just on the east side of the Jerusalem, just outside of the city. And in the Kidron Valley, even at the time of Christ, it was filled with myrtle trees, filled with them. And we do know that the myrtle tree represents restoration of God restoring broken community. And we know that because in Isaiah chapter 41, when God's talking about restoring the land and bringing, bringing his presence and his mercy back to the people, this is what he says. Isaiah 41, verse 18 and 19. I will turn the desert, God speaking, into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia the olive and the myrtle tree. And so the myrtle tree becomes symbolic of a restored community, a community that has been brought back to life in Christ by his very presence. You still with me? We still got, we're still, you're picturing, right? This is a picture scenario. So Christ is standing then in the midst of the myrtle trees and he's the one that answers Zachariah's question. The interpreter says, oh, uh, here's the answer, and then Christ speaks. And this is what he says. Look at verse 10. Jesus Christ answering Zachariah's question, what is going on here? Christ says, there, these, talking about the three angels on the three horses, these are they, love the grammar, thank you, Lord, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. The angels. And we have the three horses. He said, well, were they just riding alone? No. The understanding is that there were angels on these horses. And the angels are the ones that were patrolling the earth. And they were going out and they were looking and they were observing. And they bring back a report. And they bring back a report to Christ. And Christ asked the question like a commanding officer, which he was. And they answer like soldiers, which they were. What did you see? What did you find when you went out to all the ends of the earth? And look at their answer. Verse 11. We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Key last word, don't forget it. All the earth remains at rest. Now, it's so extraordinary that this vision given to Zechariah on February 15th, 519 BC, just so happens to perfectly coincide with the secular history of that time as well. Isn't that amazing how that works? Darius, who was king of the Persian Empire had taken the throne from his king, Cambyses, who was the son of Cyrus the Great. I won't go into too much detail. But Cambyses was down in Egypt trying to take Egypt. They were preoccupied with Egypt. And while he was away, there was a coup in Persia. Okay? And he lost the throne. And he was so grief-stricken, according to the historical record, that when he was at Mount Carmel, he committed suicide. Okay? So Darius, who was his general, his lead general, rallied the royal army, went back, overthrew the coup, and then, as all fleshly men will, he what? Declared himself king. And so Darius became king. And from 522 to 519, Darius was actively engaged in suppressing opposition within the empire. And by 519, within three years, he had brought peace to the Medo-Persian empire, which occupied the entire uh, near, near eastern world. And so the angels come back and they affirm what the secular historians say and that that was a time of great peace in the Persian Empire. And you're going, okay, thank you for the history lesson, Keith. But what does this have to do with encouraging the Jews in Jerusalem? 
I mean, how would this message that Darius' kingdom, the Persian Empire, was at rest, how would it be encouraging to the Jews? The answer is, it wasn't. And that's the point. In fact, it was quite a discouraging message. Why? Jerusalem, God's city, is an absolute ruin. The temple's destroyed. They're in the process of rebuilding their homes, their marketplaces, their roads. We know, via Ezra and Nehemiah, the walls are still destroyed. The gates are burned down. There's no protection. And then they get this wonderful report that King Darius and the entire Persian Empire is at rest, except in Jerusalem. The contrast couldn't be more glaring. And it's the reason the report was given. They were perplexed, and they were discouraged. And then they hear this. All is well in Darius' reign. What about our king? What about his kingdom? What about his city? And what about his temple? And so do you see the contrasting? On the one hand, it says that all in the Persian Empire, it's at rest. And here in Jerusalem, these people who are living, these people who went back, they returned. Why? They returned based upon the prophecy to a city that was going to be restored. That was 18 years ago in their time. And so they're asking themselves, where is our peace? Where is our rest? This is not an encouraging message. This just reveals you know, the degree to which we're struggling with the sovereignty of God and his presence in our lives and his promise to rebuild the city and rebuild the walls and rebuild Judah. We're struggling with this. They had sacrificed much. Unlike many who stayed in captivity, they sacrificed much. Family, homes, jobs, neighborhoods. Some were quite prosperous under the Persian reign. And they came back. And what they came back to was not what they expected. They expected God to return. They expected his power to return. They expected to worship him as their forefathers. They expected some of the stories that they heard from their forefathers to come true in their lives. I mean, where's the parting of the sea? Where's the Shekinah glory coming down? Where is this? And they see none of it. And so they're frustrated. Now, this is so easy for us to see, or should be. I mean, I sympathize. Oftentimes, I'm so frustrated. Unbiblically so. I look, I look at the world, and I look at our country, and I look at California, and I look at San Jose, and I think, what's going on? What is going on? Everything's upside down. The wicked seem to prosper. The agenda of darkness seems to move in every facet of life, family and work and community and politics and power. And yet God's church and God's kingdom and God's people, supposedly filled with the Holy Spirit, we seem to live and work on the margins. And this is not a plea for power. But when we look at, as, as Jerusalem looked out at the Pers- and, uh, peace and prosperity of the Persian Empire, three Ps, not easy, and we look today at the peace and prosperity we see throughout the secular world, saying, what, what's going on here? How do we make sense of this? Job, in poetry, said it much better than I. He said in, in, in Job 21, Job said, when I think about this, the upside down where he says, I'm terrified. He says, why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them. Their homes are safe and free from fear. They sing to the music of the tambourine and the harp. They make merry to the sound of the flute. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. He's saying, it's all upside down. 
If this is God's kingdom, if this is God's world, why is it like this? If these are God's people and the city of Jerusalem is God's city, then why is Darius and his kingdom at rest when the people in Jerusalem are not rest? It's a valid question. In fact, it's such a valid question, Christ himself asks in the vision. How are we to reconcile this as God's people, then and now? How are we to look out and see the movement of power so anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-kingdom in light of the power that we have in his kingdom right now? Christ poses the question for us. Look at verse 12. This is the second point, the one who intercedes on our behalf. How do we make sense of all this? Verse 12. The angel of the Lord said, this is Christ now speaking as he's standing amongst the myrtle trees. He says, oh, Lord of hosts. He's now talking to the Father, Lord of hosts. We looked at that last week. This is the almighty God. How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And so Jesus Christ, as our intercessor, asked God the Father directly, He's the almighty God. He's sovereign over the Persian Empire and Jerusalem. And he's saying, they're at peace and we're not here. And he asks this question, how long, Lord, how long will Israel's oppressors enjoy victory over them? How long will they continue this discipline that you instituted 70 years ago? How long will reality, the lives of your children, not coincide with the promises that you made? I'm glad that Christ asked the question. I don't know that I would dare. We, we might dare, but Christ asked it, right? And he says to his father, how long? We see this question permeate the book of Psalms. I'll just give you a few. Psalm 94, how long will the wicked be jubilant? Psalm 80, how long will your angels smol- How long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget for you forget? How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? How long will you hide your face from us? It's a valid question, especially in light of 520 Jerusalem, and especially in light of 2013 contemporary American culture. How long, O Lord? He's not accusing God. He's not accusing God of wrongdoing. Nor is he even questioning the rightful discipline that God enacted against Judah for their idolatry. He's not. What he's doing is he's calling on scripture. He's questioning God based upon God's own word. What do I mean? Jeremiah had said the time had come for restoration. So God's own word was the time had come for Jerusalem to be restored. I'll give you two. Jeremiah chapter 25, talking of Judah, the southern kingdom. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve and, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Gives a timeline. So we go back to 586 and the fall of Judah by the Babylonians. And again in Jeremiah 29:10, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And so by God's own plan, The time was up. Uh, By God's own mouth, it was time for the discipline to end, the punishment to end, and for restoration to come. And so that's why Jesus, as the angel of the Lord says, Father, according to your word, the time is complete. 
Jerusalem should be restored. All of Judah should be restored. And so we find Christ here in the Old Testament, in the minor prophet of Zechariah, standing as the high priest. I mean, this is theologically and Christologically, this is extraordinary. Jesus Christ is interceding on behalf of the Jews before the Father. And he's saying, Lord, I know and you know your word. And now it's time for the discipline to end and for your mercy and your healing and your restoring power to flow. He was interceding for them then, just as he intercedes for us today, because this is his calling as high priest. This was his ministry. Hebrews chapter 7. Move it in the New Testament. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because what? He always lives to do what? To intercede for them, to intercede for us. Christ lives to intercede for us. To talk to God the Father on our behalf. This is what he did then. This is what he does now. This is his ministry to willfully and joyfully intervene for the redeemed. We see this so clearly in his life and death and resurrection. I mean, the very gospel screams intercession. Right? I mean, his life, he lived the sin, sinless life. Why? Because we cannot and we would not. And then what does he do? He intercedes and he imparts that sinlessness to us through Christ, through, through the gospel. He gives it to us. He intercedes in his death. We get to celebrate the broken body and the spilled blood of, blood of Christ. In his death, he intercedes. Even on the cross, what does he utter? What is the other in, in his intercessions, high priest? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He intercedes. In his resurrection, he intercedes. How? By overcoming sin and death and hell for us. Because we can't do it on our own. And now, in his ascension, he's seated at the right hand of God. And this very day, this very hour, Jesus Christ intercedes on your behalf. He speaks to the Father as your advocate, as your lawyer, as your high priest. And we must thank God for that. Because we wouldn't last a moment in the kingdom apart from Christ interceding. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? That's us. Who? Christ Jesus who died... More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And so Jesus Christ appears to Zechariah in this vision. The man who is riding the red horse, the man who's standing amongst the myrtle trees, is the high priest Christ. He is the intercessor. And he is constantly interceding with God the Father on behalf of those who are redeemed according to his merits. He doesn't say, you know, Father, they've tried really hard and they, you know, they've done a good job. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know, God, uh, they've been disciplined long enough. He doesn't say that. He intercedes based upon his merits. He did then and he does now. And he says, he says to us, this is my son, not because he's worthy. This is your son because of the work that I did. And so all the intercession is based upon the work on the cross. His life, his death, his resurrection. Those are the merits that Christ lifts up before the Father and says, this is why you should redeem them. This is why you should have mercy on them. 
This is why you should come to them in their presence and work in their lives and grow them and sanctify them. This is why. Not because they're worth it. They are completely unworthy. They hate you, Father, but because of my work, intercede, move. I'm thankful that Christ has not put up my life and my works as reason why God should move in me. There'd be no movement. There'd be nothing but death. But instead, he says to the Father, I want you to move and sanctify and save and bring Keith and you, if you know him, into my kingdom because of me. Because of what I've done. Because of my love for you and my love for them. Jesus undertakes our cause. And you... Maybe we just don't know that we need an, un, uh, an undertaker. No. <laughs> we don't, maybe we don't know we, don't, we need someone to undertake our cause, an advocate. Maybe we don't realize that. Maybe we think we can stand before God on our own. But he knows it. And therefore, he comes in and he enables us to overcome what we saw last week, our evil ways and our evil deeds. And Jesus, who intercedes on our behalf, comes before the Father when we fall short and when we do sin. I mean, how many of you have sinned and thought, that's it, I'm out. I'm done. There's no way he's going to keep the promise. If that were true, we'd all be out. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ stands before the Father every day interceding, especially when we sin, (laughs) right? I mean, 1 John chapter 2. John says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, which of course we all do, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The angel of the Lord, the rider of the red horse, the one standing in the midst of the myrtle trees. He is interceding. And all the intercession is a result of his accomplished work at Calvary. All of it. You take away Calvary, you don't have anything to, be, to have someone intercede for you. There's nothing on your behalf. But at the cross, we have it. An example. Shortly after I left teaching, I liquidated my retirement fund. 14 years in the state retirement fund. It was wise counsel. And I took it and I put it into an IRA, also wise counsel. And they said, put it into a very safe mutual fund until you decide to do what you want to do with it. Said also wise counsel. So I did all these things. One morning I come to work and I get a message from Fidelity where the money is. And this broker says, you need to call us immediately. There's a problem. Hmm. So I call. And there was a, an anomaly of sorts. A, 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 an unprecedented dip in the market with a, a computer malfunction in the NASDAQ. Long story short, somehow my money was purchased in a mutual fund at its highest value. It dropped down to literally pennies on the dollar and was sold, and that's what I had. 14 years of retirement, literally gone. It went from whatever, you know, uh, I don't even know what the amount was, say $10,000 down to $500 in a day, in a moment, right? And so I thought, well, that's not good. <laughs> Hmm. My first thought was, my first thought was, how am I going to tell Lori <laughs> that I lost all of our savings? First thought. And so I'm talking with this broker who was just a, uh, you know, probably an entry level broker, and I said, "There's got to be something we can do because this this wasn't supposed to happen. The fund is a is a, a, a established low risk fund." And he said, "Oh, I agree." And and while he's talking to me, someone else comes on the line. 
And he says, hello, Mr. Booth, I'm so-and-so. I, I, I'm aware of your situation. I'm aware of your crisis. He said, let me go talk to somebody, and I will call you back in 30 minutes. So I thanked him, and I got the phone. I thought, no way. I mean, I, I know enough about how it works, thinking I'm never getting that money back. It was a legal transaction, regardless of the circumstances. Legal transaction, never going to see the money again. Fifteen minutes later, the man calls, and he says, Mr. Booth, I have good news. I spoke with the powers that be, and we've canceled the transaction. The money's been restored to your account. Is there anything else I can do for you today? (laughs) What? (laughs) No. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, this man interceded on my behalf. He went to powers they did not have access to. Right? He went to people who had the ability to do things I didn't think were even possible. And he, he not only got me out of a very difficult dinner conversation with my wife. I mean, really. Hey, hey honey, we lost all the savings. Pass the salad. I mean, you know, that's not going to go well no matter how you say it. It's just a bad dialogue. But he, he helped with my and my children's financial future. I never met the man. I've never talked to him since. But I'm so thankful that he interceded. I'm so thankful. He did a work I could not do. He overcame a mess that was my mess. In our vision, Jesus petitions God for grace, for mercy, to be poured out on Jerusalem because of the great work he was going to do 500 years from that point. And today, Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf, petitioning the Father to pour out his grace and his mercy and his power uh, in our lives because of the work he did 2,000 years ago. And so it all culminates at the cross. What a shock. Everything comes back to that. And because his sacrifice at Calvary was infinitely gracious, we should never, ever, ever fear that it will one day be exhausted when he intercedes for us. Christ is never going to say to the Father, you know, I'm interceding on behalf of my, my brother, my, my, my friend. Oh, we ran out. It's never going to happen. Infinite amount of grace to be poured out for all those who are redeemed. Never going to be a day when there's insufficient grace. So, you see the problem. The patrol unit goes out. All's calm in the Persian Empire, right? All's quiet on the Western Front or Eastern Front. And the Jews here, they don't like the answer because they're thinking, what about Jerusalem? What about our city? And even Christ says, Father, the time has come. You promised in your word. When are you going to restore? When are you going to bring mercy? Point number three, gracious and comforting words. Do you want these? You say, I've been waiting, these, waiting for these for 35 weeks. Gracious and comforting words. Verse 13, the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Now, this is amazing. Christ asked the question, and the Father talks to the interpreter. And then the interpreter talks to Zechariah. God the Father, to the angel who talked with me, said, cry out. So, there's a a direction for Zechariah. I'm going to tell you what you're going to say. Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. That's the Persian Empire. For while I was angry but a little while, they further the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. 
My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Some of you are going, hmm? What are the gracious and comforting words in English? What are the gracious and comforting words? What are they? Context. Discontent, discouraged, not worshiping Jewish community in Jerusalem. Okay? They get the word that all is well in Darius' empire, but not all is well in God's city. They wanted the promises to be fulfilled that they would be what? A mighty nation. A royal priesthood. A people set apart for God's own glory. They, they heard the promises. They read the promises. They declared the promises. And yet they're not being fulfilled. So what does God the Father say to such a cynical, discouraged generation? What does he say to us? Such a cynical and discouraged generation. What does he say to me? I mean, I, there's one way we could describe me. Cynical and at times highly discouraged. What gracious and comforting word does God bring to someone as cynical and skeptical as me or you or us? I want you to notice three things in this. He reveals three things about his relationship with them as a God, as God and them being his people, and then the action he's going to take. Three things. First, we see that God has not abandoned them. They thought he was gone but was actually deeply concerned about their current situation. How do we know that? Look at verses 14 and 15. These are word, extreme words used to express an extreme affection. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For why I was angry, but a little while they furthered the disaster. God is jealous for his people. You know, in the Hebrew, that literally reads, I am jealous with great jealousy. What do we know? God's jealous. He's a jealous God. And he's greatly jealous for his people, for those who had returned to Zion. Now, even my nine-year-old, when I was reading this verse to him and studying this week, he goes, but jealousy is a bad thing. I thought, hmm. So we hear that term jealousy, and our first thought is... Othello. Oh, maybe not. Did you, did you do any of the Shakespeare? Othello, right? I mean, I mean what, there's no, is there any other story? Desdemona, his wife? I mean, he's so enraged at this jealousy because he thinks that she's cheating and she wasn't. And what happens? He kills her. That's not good jealousy. So in that context, Joshua, my son, is right. Human jealousy is usually born out of possession and, and selfish desires and usually leads to actions which are not righteous. But biblical jealousy is the product of an other-centered love. Biblical jealousy is about guarding and honoring and protecting the ones that you love. And so, when God is saying, I am jealous, I am, I am jealous with a great jealousy for Jerusalem, for his people, when he says that, he's saying, I am radically and passionately in love with you. I love you. You think that I've left you? This holy response of jealousy is the right response anytime someone's threatening those whom we love, external or internal. This is the response that we want from God, saying that he's jealous for them and he's jealous for us. It should give us great joy to think that God is jealous for the relationship he has with you. 
in the context of the marriage covenant, I was trying to think, how can I put this in a way that, that helps us see it more clearly? In the context of a marriage covenant, I'll make it real personal. If a man starts to email my wife and send my wife gifts and ask my wife out for lunch, hmm, if I'm not jealous in any capacity, then I cannot say I love my wife as Jesus Christ loves the church. In fact, I can go one step further. I cannot say I love God in that manner in which I love my wife. Right? I mean, if I love God and as a result love my wife and someone's calling and wooing, I'll use the older term, I love it, wooing my wife, assuming by God's grace that I don't do something really bad out of my jealousy and anger, the right thing I would do would be to guard and protect her from what? I mean, if the jealousy is godly driven, then it would be to guard her from possibly... Breaking the marriage covenant, possibly committing adultery, both of which God abhors. So if I love her, I'm going to guard her relationship with Christ. So if someone starts to do that externally, I'm going to become jealous and rightfully angry and hopefully act in a godly manner to deal with it. As my oldest son said, you'll neutralize the threat. I'm like, no, I won't do that. I won't. I won't. If my wife's affections, right? So you have external and internal threats. The external threat in our context is Persia. But the internal threat before they were disciplined was idolatry. They just, they didn't, they didn't have the God as their number one. So if there's an internal uh, uh, um, uh, enemy, and, and I see my wife's affections for me diminishing, then I should become jealous for that. And hopefully I would, I would act to increase her affection for me. Why? So that her eye wouldn't wander. Why? So that she wouldn't possibly cheat on me and therefore commit adultery and therefore bring dishonor to God and herself. Biblical jealousy is an other-centered response. And it's a right response. In other words, our love for God will cultivate in us a right jealousy and a right anger when we see things threatening right relationships. And so in our vision, the same type of love is being expressed in extreme language by the living God. In verse 15, God God says, this is God the Father, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little while, they furthered a disaster. What is he saying? I'm exceedingly angry at Persia. I'm not pleased with Darius. Why? Why? God was angry with Judah for a while. Right? And we saw that in Jeremiah. We saw it in Isaiah. And he was rightfully angry. Why? Because they had forsaken him internally. They were worshiping idols. They had turned from their lover, right, and turned away. And so God, what did he do? He brought the Babylonians. What did he do? He destroyed the temple and the city. What did he do? He took them into exile, but not forever. And so the time had come. Their discipline had been exercised. The allotted time was complete, and now it was time for restoration. But what was Persia doing? They were furthering the disaster. They were going, oh, this is good. We want to exercise our own punishment. And they were taking it beyond its right measure. And so God said, I am exceedingly angry. I was angry with you, but I'm really angry with them. When I coach football, there were times when a player would do something that required discipline. 
oftentimes they would talk back. Oftentimes they would use language they ought not to use on the football field, at least on our football field. Uh, they, would, they would be goofing around, right? And so because I cared about their character way beyond the silly game of football and how they were maturing as men, I would discipline them. So I would come, you know, and, and player A would say, you know, I would say, here, here, do this. And they'd say, I'm not doing that. I'd say, take a lap. Run a mile, right? And invariably, some of the coaches with way too much testosterone would jump in and go, no, run three miles. I'm like, mm. And suddenly, or maybe not so suddenly, my anger or frustration in that moment for that young man who just lipped off to me in trying to grow his character was now shifted to this coach who was exacerbating the discipline. And what was a very right measure for the response now became excessive. And what was good discipline now became punishment. And so I was no longer angry at the player. Now I'm angry at my coach. This is what's happening here. God exercised right discipline because of Judah's sin. But that time had ended. And it was time for restoration. It was time for mercy. And Persia was extending that. So God comes in here and he says, I'm your God and you're my people. And I'm jealous for you. I, I, I love you. I've always loved you. I've never stopped loving you. Uh, yeah, I disciplined you, but it was for your own good because you were turning away from me. But I've never stopped loving you. I've never stopped being your God. I didn't cease to be your God when you were in Babylon. I didn't cease to be your God when you came back here and things are not as you thought they were going to be. I'm your God and you're my people. And you know that some were standing there as Zechariah is saying this and they're, they're saying to themselves, as I would, prove it. Prove it. And he does, because he's not just a God of word, he's a God of action. Look at what he says he's going to do. He makes some radical, immediate promises that they saw in their own lives. So he says, I'm jealous for you, I love you, I'm your God, I never, I've never forsaken you. And then in verses 16 and 17, look what he says. Therefore, in light of my jealousy and my great love for you, in light of, in light of what I've said, therefore, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched over, out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 17. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And so the first thing God says, and I hope you didn't miss it when you read it earlier. He says, I have returned. I'm already here. Right? I mean, they're looking around as we do. They're looking around going, all right, no temple, no house, no road, no wall, no gate. Where's God? Where did he go? Where is he? Because it looks like he's not here. It looks like he's left us, like he's abandoned us. And God is saying, and this is a really hard translation in the Greek, I mean the, the Greek, in the Hebrew. And one of the reasons your NIV and your, your uh, um, uh, uh, EASB, they translate it, will return. But I, I looked at this long and hard, and it is a, it's a past present in that he's already there. He's already returned. He's already in their midst, and they don't even know it. They think he's left. And he's saying, he says, I have returned to Jerusalem, not with condemnation, not with judgment. I've returned with mercy. I mean, this is a fundamental common mistake that we, we make, right? I make. I won't impose that upon you. When things aren't going well, when life is really hard, when there's stress at home and stress at work and stress with the neighbors and stress with the finances, I lose my entire retirement. My first thought is, where are you, Lord? 
You know, it's like that Home Depot commercial where the guy's walking around going, hello, where are you, God? And in the midst of the, of the chaos and the noise and the hardship, God's saying, I'm already here. Not only am I here, silly saint, I'm in the process of doing all this great work. And you don't even know it. I mean, look what God says here. He says, my temple, which you started, which you started 18 years ago and stopped, I'm going to rebuild. Look at verse 16. He says, my house shall be built in it, it being Jerusalem. And what do we know? Three and a half years later, three and a half years after this prophecy, the temple was finished. Three and a half years later. Those people heard this, this promise and saw it fulfilled. But that wasn't it. He said, I'm going to rebuild not just my temple, but the entire city. Difficult verse, 16. The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Think of it. You guys know what a plumb line is? You know, you chalk them, and you, you, you're going to make sure you have a line so that when you put your floors in, they're not like this. They're actually straight. He's saying, the entire city, I'm going to restore. Here's the promise. I'm going to restore my temple, which they saw in three and a half years. And in their generation... For the next, listen to this, for the next 500 years, God was fulfilling this promise. Jerusalem reached its pinnacle of, of building and expansion in 200 BC, but it continued to be built all the way up to Herod the Great, right to the millennium, right to the birth of Christ. This promise is being fulfilled. I'm going to restore your temple, and I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem, and it's going to be extraordinary. Not only that. He says, I will build all of Judah and its cities. And once again, they will what? They will overflow, he said, with prosperity. And he did. So God says, listen, I'm not coming in saying I'm jealous for you and that I, I love you without showing you. Here's, here's proof. Here's proof. Your temple, which is utterly destroyed, I will rebuild in three and a half years. Here's proof. Your entire city, and it's a mess. Look around. This entire city, city, I'm going to start a building project that's going to last for 500 years. All the cities in Judah, all the cities that surround Jerusalem, I'm going to work in them too. And I will make this once again a prosperous place. And he fulfilled that point by point to perfection. Isaiah, 200 years before this, once again, if they had known their word, they wouldn't have been so anxious and so discouraged. Isaiah 54, 200 years prior, listen to what God says. He says, do not be afraid, all you Babylonian exiles who have returned. That's not in there. He says, do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. You will forget the shame of your youth, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. And then he says this, the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. O oh, afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you up. You can almost hear Jesus saying, Oh, ye of little faith. I mean, they're all discouraged and upset. And I, I, can, I can imagine their dinner conversations. Yeah, some God, some stories, so much for this Father. O oh, ye of little faith. The Bible and the historical record again and again testify to the fact, not opinion, of God's active, willful, and intentional presence in the life of his believers. In our lives. Active, intentional moving. That, that means it doesn't matter how bad it gets for us. 
And I know for some of you, I know personally, some of your stories are dark. You've had real hard times. And if you persevered, you then testified to the glory of Christ in the midst of those dark times. And so God is saying here, I never left you. I'm jealous for you. The gracious word, I'm jealous for you. And I, I love you with an everlasting love. I never stopped loving you. Just because I spanked you doesn't mean I don't love you. And he brought a comforting word with what? His presence and his promises, all of which he fulfilled. Now, that is sufficient, is it not? I mean, it should be sufficient for us to go, good, good. God is jealous for me. I'm going I'm to meditate on that for a long time. God's promises to me will be fulfilled. I'm going to meditate on that. But God is so gracious with this encouraging word. He doesn't stop there. He throws in verse 17. And it's not just I'm going to add this on. It is the, it is the culminating, comforting verse. Look at what he says. Verse 17, the angel says, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. The Lord will comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now, it's possible to read that as a summary verse. It's possible. But almost without exception, the commentator said, no, 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 no. In the Hebrew, it smacks of something much deeper much deeper. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I cannot explain to you why everybody's in agreement on this, but when I give you some, uh, some connection to the New Testament, we might see it. God said, God said to Zechariah, the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 2, there was a man by the name of Simeon. Many of you know his story. It's a great one. Dr. Luke writes in Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 25. Now, there was a man... In Jerusalem, called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. Listen closely. He was waiting for the consolation, not constellation, the consolation, the comfort of Israel. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the comforter. The Lord said he was going to restore the Babylonian exiles, and he did. The Lord said, I'm going to rebuild my temple, and he did. The Lord said, I'm going to restore the city, and he did. The Lord said, I'm going to spend 500 years building all of Judah, and he did. Incredible material blessings. But there's something embedded in this word that went way beyond the material. It went way beyond the physical temple or the physical city or physical Judah. God said, I will bring comfort to Zion and once again choose Jerusalem. In other words, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the city, the restoration of the people in Judah was a miraculous work, but it was a sign and it was a physical gift to reflect a spiritual gift of infinitely greater value. I'll continue in Luke chapter 2. Moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts when Joseph and Mary brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him, the baby, in his arms and he praised God saying, Listen, sovereign Lord, as you have promised, and you now, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. That's, he's talking about himself. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The comfort, 
that God brought to Zion went way beyond physical buildings and roads and gates and walls. The comfort, literally in the Greek, the paraklesen, the comforter is Christ. It's him. And here's Zechariah gazing upon him and he doesn't even know it. Zechariah is gazing upon the comfort. He's the man riding the red horse. He's gazing upon, upon Christ. He's the man standing amidst the myrtle trees in the glen. God responded to their question, where is God? By saving their city. 500 years later, he responds to their question, where is God? By saving their souls. And he did so by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came from heaven in order to to make right the mess that we've made. He came down into our mess, into our turmoil, and he, he gave his body and he gave his blood so that we might have life. And what's so amazing to me, in order for the temple of God to be built in you through the Holy Spirit, the temple of Jesus' body had to be utterly destroyed, and it was on the cross. In order for God to once again dwell in the city of sinful man, Jesus Christ, our Lord, had to be cast out of the city and crucified on a cross. In order for the lives of God's people to be restored, completely restored, with God, with family, with community, Jesus Christ, his relationship with God had to be fractured, his relationship with his people had to be destroyed, and he had to be cast out, utterly forsaken. Jesus' life had to be sacrificed in order for any of this grace to come, and for any of the rebuilding to take place, in order for any restoration to come to you, or to your family, or to this church, or to this country, Christ had to die. And all the sin, and all the wrath, and all the punishment that mankind rightly deserves as a result of our sin, he bore, he took it upon himself, so that we might have life and have it eternally. And that means, the comfort, the paraclesen, is Jesus I mean, I, I rejoice in the work that God did with the, the exiles who returned. I do. I rejoice that the temple was rebuilt. I rejoice this city. All those promises fulfilled. I rejoice in that. But where is that temple now? Look at the city now. Our comfort is not in a material building, and it's not in a material city. Our comfort is Christ. That's why Paul says to us, in the midst of the mess, right, For those of you who get really discouraged, you get filled with anxiety and you get angry and you shake your fist at your employer or your country or your president or the world and you say, God, where are you? He says, take comfort no matter how hard your times may be because Jesus Christ has already triumphed. The comforter has already won. Paul says boldly in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, mocking death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, have comfort. Have comfort. Victory now. Victory for all eternity, because Jesus has won the battle. 
saints, I can say to you, because the word of God says this to you, and I can say to you personally, by my experiences, that God has not abandoned you. If you know Christ as Lord and Savior, he has not left you. Jesus himself promised before he left, he said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you, and he fulfills his promises. He is present in the mess. He didn't leave. He hasn't left. So when things get really dark, and if they haven't for you, they will. Look around. And don't evaluate your present condition, good or bad, based upon what you see. If you know Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have sought forgiveness for your sins and you've entered into the holiest of holies and you belong to him and he is your God and you are his son or daughter, then he is present. But he's not just present, he's active and he's moving in all the darkness and all the hardship and all the chaos and all the destruction and it is wide. I agree, but he hasn't left. Not only that, not only has he not left, but when you sin in the darkness, when you forsake God, when you turn from God, when you shake your fist at God, Christ is standing before him, interceding on your behalf, saying, forgive him again, Father, for he knows not what he does again. He's interceding. God is working to bring about a total and complete restoration for his people. The Bible says he's going to make all things new. He needed them to hear that then so they would engage in the work, so they would begin worshiping rightly again, so they'd build the temple, so they could have the sacrificial system, so they could worship a holy God. He needed them to hear it, and he needs us to hear it today as well, probably even more so. I imagine as a people, we are more discouraged and more despondent than they were. He said, I'm going to make all things new. I am making all things new. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your body, your body. He came the first time to bring comfort. He's going to come the second time to bring it in an everlasting fashion. The vision that God gave to Zechariah was as much for them as it is for us today. So I'll ask you a few questions and then we will take communion. Do you see daily how Jesus Christ intercedes for you on your behalf? It's a fearful thing to confess your sins if you don't have an intercessor. Do you see the life, death, and resurrection, his work that brings about the forgiveness of God? Do you go to the word of God to hear him speak to you and rely upon his promises and his faithfulness in the midst of all the things that you hear from the world? When the world's saying, give up. He's not here. He's not faithful. Do you know, go back and read Nehemiah. So many voices in their ears. You don't need to rebuild the walls. You don't need to rebuild the temple. Don't be foolish. Fend for yourself. Are you going to God's word and hearing his promises and knowing his faithfulness? Do you fundamentally know on a daily basis that God is in your mess? He's in the mess. He's not standing outside going, hmm, again? He's in the mess. And he's saying, in the mess with you, turn to me. I'm in the mess with you. See me. 
do you see that this man riding on the red horse and standing in the glen amongst the myrtle trees is Christ himself? In all his father's glory and with the heavenly host, the Bible says he's going to come again. He's going to come again. And he's going to right all the wrongs. And if you know him through his son, he will bring to you a comfort that knows no end. He will bring you in fully. And you'll never leave again. So a question this morning for you. And it's a fundamental question. If this vision is not going to be utterly terrifying to you. Will some of the men come forward so we can pass these out? Here's the question. Do you have peace with God? Do you have the comfort that God brings through the peace of Jesus Christ? If that answer is no, then all the encouragement and all the promises and all the, the joy that resonates from this vision is not for you. Because if you do not know the peace of God through the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ, then you're still at war with God. And you are going to experience Christ riding on the red horse. If you know Christ, then we get an opportunity to engage in a holy ordinance where we recognize him at the mercy seat. Where Jesus Christ did the unthinkable to redeem us, to restore us, to bring us back in. And that was sacrificing his body and spilling his blood. Why? So that your body would be spared and your blood would not be spilled. And then he, and he gives us this in an ordinance that, that will hopefully transcend time until Christ comes again in all his glory. And we have him in the flesh. But until then, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've been baptized, this ordinance is for you. And it is an ordinance of radical encouragement. I mean, here's the display of the jealousy of God. How jealous was God for you? How fiercely did he pursue your soul? So much so that he sacrificed Christ. How angry is God with sin? How much does he hate death? So much so he gave his son to experience death and hell to release you from it. This is radical love displayed. When we take the bread and we hold the juice that represents his blood, this is his tangible teaching to, he's saying, I love you. Do you see that? I love you. So if you know Christ, then this is for you. If you don't know Christ, do not take the elements. If you know Christ, this is for you. I want you to take it. And as it's being passed out, I want you to meditate and contemplate this sacrifice that God made to not only reveal his love, but to act in his love so that you will be with him in his comfort forever. Forever. Let's pray. Father, you are a holy God. You are the creator of all that is seen and unseen. You reveal to us, Lord, that you indeed hold the galaxies in your hand. Your throne is seated in the highest of the heavens. Yet in all that truth, you chose to come to us in our sin, in our rebellion, and to love us. 
you, the Lord of hosts, God Almighty, come to us as a jealous God. We know we're not worthy of this, Lord. We know we're not worthy of the relationship. We're not worthy of the salvation. We're not worthy to have your son. And yet you say in Ephesians that according to your good pleasure, you decided to do this great work. I pray, Father, that we would not be discouraged or despondent, that we would not look around at our lives or this community or this state or this country, the world, and ask, where are you? Instead, Father, I pray that we would look to your word and know that you are here and that you are active and that your promises are fulfilled. Even in our own lives, being fulfilled. That you are indeed doing a very great work in us at this moment and you promise the work that you start, you will finish, you'll bring to completion. There'll be total restoration. As hard as that is to see now, and I know for many, as hard as that is to believe, that you will restore all things, make all things new. What a glorious thought, Lord, that one day we'll be free from the bondage of sin completely, able to be in your presence and rejoice with you in your holy city. I pray by your grace, Lord, that we would fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought when your son returns again. The hope of life, the hope of joy, the hope of that deep love, and the hope of comfort, everlasting comfort when the comforter comes and never leaves again. Press these things deep, I pray, so that we will live in accordance with them. In Christ's holy name, amen.